From WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. beginning the end so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wgdr i'm tony Epstein. it's the magical mystery tour join us as we dive into the heart of things exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous crazy world we share together Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? Let's play a game. Let's play a game, okay? Okay, 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 okay. Let's play a game. Let's play a game. Okay, 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 okay. We're taking our microphone to different locations, to different places. Your job is to close your eyes and listen and decide where we are and what is happening. Okay? Okay? This time, I'm going to ask you to do something besides just listening. I would like for you and your friends pretend you're actually in the places you hear. Make believe. And while you're pretending and having fun, please ask yourself this question. And what will become of me? And what will become of me? Please ask yourself this question. What will become of me? And what will become of me? There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. 
You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind in living color on WTDR. Wow. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in. simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. hear from Alan Rabinowitz, including an interview I did with Alan in 2014 after the release of his book Indomitable Beast, The Remarkable Journey of the Jaguar. Alan Rabinowitz is a zoologist and one of the world's foremost experts on big cats and conservation of big cats in the wild. And then it hit me. I had an epiphany. Conservation thinking, the traditional wildlife protection, was always about locking up animals away from people. This is where the tiger lived. The tiger was out there among all this. All of our problems came from trying to aspire to some Bambi-like steady-state equilibrium where the wildlife lived in harmony within a hard boundary area and we protected them and nothing would ever be affected. That's why we were always in crisis mode because they never lived in harmony with people. What conservation was, what I realized it was, and what the whole conservation community needs to realize it is, is just like everything else in this world, it's a dynamic disequilibrium. That's what conservation must be viewed at, just like we view our everyday life as a dynamic disequilibrium. That's how conservation has to go. Because once you realize that, then you can accomplish so much more. And I guarantee you, and I don't do this lightly, I can save these big cats. 
I can guarantee you that your children and your children's children and generations to come will still have wild tigers and wild jaguars out there. I remember very clearly the only thing I thought in my mind was where the hell is Belize? When I first drove in, it felt like I was driving into the bowels of a green sea. It was a wonderful feeling, a feeling of being a bit frightened, a feeling of being totally free, a feeling that anything, anything can happen from now on. My life was an open book, and that's exactly the way I wanted it. I felt more alive, more invigorated than I had ever felt in my life. I didn't need to be with people. I didn't want to be with people. All I wanted was to be out in the wild and feeling the energy and the power of true wildness flowing into me and feeding this deep need I had inside of me to be whole. When I first heard jaguars in the jungle, I couldn't see them. I was out at night. I could hear two of them vocalizing to each other with these guttural grunts, these ooh, ooh, ooh. And it was dark and I was alone and it hit me viscerally. It just almost was one of those things that knocks the wind out of you. Jaguars, by being the top predators, keep in control all of the things below them. We need them if we want to maintain a truly natural, intact forest system. If we don't have them, the forest will change, and it will change in ways which we don't even know what the consequences are. I love big cats. Was that something that you had always felt? Oh, as a child, I loved big cats. I grew up in New York City. I'm about your age. And on Saturday afternoons after my morning cartoons, I would often take the subway up to the um, Museum of Natural History. You're kidding. And I also spent a lot of time at the Hayden Planetarium. But I was especially fascinated with leopards and jaguars and, and all big cats and, and little cats as well. Yeah. No, no, so is I. It's funny. My wife now, I met my wife while I was capturing and studying tigers in Thailand on the Thai-Burmese border. She's a geneticist, and she now runs the genomics program at the American Museum of Natural History. She does all the, all the DNA work for our cats. Wow, what a great confluence of talent. We're going to get well, into... my kids are the ones who have it best. They can go with me in the field sometimes, or they go spend time with her in the genomics lab, splicing DNA and cloning and doing all kinds of neat stuff. Oh, I would have, I would have loved being born into your family. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure that my kids right now would agree with you, but hopefully in the future they might. Well, it just sounds very adventurous and fun and exciting, and I, I also know very well that it's very, very challenging. So it's, it's not all a bed of roses. No, 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 it's not. And I actually don't spend nearly as much time as I 
wish I could or probably should as a father with the kids because of this work. Yep, things like that always suffer. But but your work is, is very, very important, and it sounds to me that this is really what your life is mainly about. It really is. I've, I mean, I've tried... I've tried slowing down, actually. I've tried, especially when I was diagnosed with leukemia. I actually tried stopping for a year, thinking because the doctors said that if I don't go in, the, if I don't get sick in the field, then maybe I could live longer. So I actually tried slowing down, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I, I ended up speeding it up because time was of the essence. So how's your health now? Well, it's. I mean, it's. I've got chronic leukemia, CLL, which is slow. That, that's the good part of it. The, the bad part of it, it's incurable. So they're not even treating me. It's, it's progressing, and I'm not being treated because they don't want to have, since they can't cure it, they don't want to treat it till they, they, they absolutely have to. I'm actually going now. It, it's been almost 14 years, and I haven't even been, been treated since I was diagnosed. So that's the good thing. But... Things are starting to occur now. Some, some, some issues are starting to occur. So, in fact, in two weeks, I'm going to MD Anderson in Houston, Texas, to just get, get a second opinion. But, but I'm, still, I'm still traveling. I'm leaving for Nicaragua after Thanksgiving. I'm, um, I've got plans to go to India and Thailand and Burma, and I'm still going at it. I just, I just don't know how much longer. It's getting harder. As we get older, as you know, too, and I'm getting tired, but this is, it's a double kind of whammy. I want to do as much as I can while I can. I suspect that living true to your own life will actually be the best thing for your health and well-being. I think so. I was miserable trying to stay home, and my wife was as well. She told me to go. She, she said she can't live. You know, I was staying home thinking I could extend by a few years but then not being the kind of person you, you want to be or you want your children to see you be is not is not a good option it's like a life that you're not living on your own terms is almost exactly not worth living at all exactly let's get into how you first became interested in jaguars i was born with a debilitating stutter uh as as a child, from from my earliest recollections, as a child, I was never able to to speak more than a few words. I I couldn't speak a fluent sentence. The school system at that time didn't quite know how to deal with such issues, and they put me into classes for for problem children, for what the other children called the retarded classes, but it was special ed classes. So I just stopped trying as a child. I stopped speaking entirely because if adults thought I was broken, I thought I was broken. But I learned as a child, because I grew up in New York City, I, I had pets. I had New York City-type pets, chameleons and turtles, garter snake, hamster, and I could talk to them. I couldn't, I wasn't fluent, but I could talk even some full sentences, the the psychological component of the stuttering went away. There was no expectation by the animals. There was no judgment in my child's mind. So I learned I could speak to animals, and, and my parents, who tried everything to help me with the stuttering, have finally realized there was nothing they knew of that could be done. 
so they just tried to make me as comfortable as possible, and that involved often taking me to the Bronx Zoo in New York City, where I would wander among the animals and talk to them and be with them. And my favorite place at the Bronx Zoo was called the Lion House, the big cat house, where there was just cage after cage of big, strong cats. And, and I realized instantly that these animals were like me they were they were healthy they were big they they were strong there was nothing wrong with them and yet they were locked in these cages for for one reason only and that's because they didn't have a human voice i don't think we would keep many animals if any in zoos today if they had human voices they just couldn't say please let me out please i'm i'm lonely or i'm sad or i'm sick so we just felt free to lock them up as I was being locked inside my own my own head. So I got strength from that big cat house. I felt like I was one with a, with a different world. But the one cat of all of them that attracted me was the one cat that didn't charge the bars and start roaring and, and make good displays for the people. It was the jaguar. The jaguar would always sit back in a corner or on a high shelf of its concrete cage and just watch everybody, watch quietly. If I stayed by the jaguar's cage long enough and people went away and I was alone there, sometimes the jaguar would come up to the bars and sit with me and we'd look in each other's face. No growling, no aggression. And... This animal was me, and I, and, I, and I promised it over and over again, as I promised many of my, my pets and the, the other animals at the zoo, that if I ever found my voice as a human, which I hoped one day I would, that I would try to be their voice. And I, never, I didn't know what I would end up doing as a child. I didn't even know what a zoologist was. I didn't know if I would ever be able to not stutter. I just felt that these animals were like me and they made me whole and that somehow if I could help myself, I had to help them. And that feeling never went away. And those initial early years and bonding with that one particular jaguar never went away. So I kept on coming back to it, even when I studied other species. I've studied many, many kinds of animals besides cats. I've worked on bears and civets and rhinos and raccoons and and many many species in my career and i love them all but i never lost that initial bond with the jaguar and i always remembered the promise i made what makes jaguars so unique in the wild and in big cats specifically i mean they're very beautiful and they're very mysterious but What's, what's so unique about them? They also seem highly intelligent in a way that's very different from other creatures, perhaps a bit similar to wolves. Yes, they are unique, and they are highly intelligent. And I didn't realize that until years and years of studying not only of jaguars, but then going all over the world and studying other species of cats and large carnivores. I, uh, I've studied tigers and i've studied asiatic leopards and i've worked on mountain lions and i've worked on bears and and the more i worked on other animals realizing how spectacular they all were and unique in their own way 
I realized more and more how different the Jaguar was, and and that's what this book is. That this book could not have been written any any earlier in my life because it's the culmination of decades of thirty years of working not only with jaguars but but other species in the wild, and actually coming to the realization of how these animals have been able to survive so much better than the other big cats. That was my my question. Why are they so resilient? They're in better shape than the tigers and lions and leopards and mountain lions. Why, why are they in such better shape? Some of it is historical due to what happened when the Spanish and Portuguese conquered the New World and, and brought the diseases that, that wiped out indigenous people so that much of the jaguar's habitat was actually able to rebound and jaguar populations were actually able to reoccupy places in Central America and Mexico that they had almost been wiped out from back in the pre-colonial times. So part of it was luck, frankly, history. But that still didn't explain it all. It it didn't explain why. Jaguars are the most powerful cat in the Western Hemisphere, third largest cat in the world. The strongest jaws of any cat, pound for pound, in the world. They kill differently from any other cat. They kill by crunching bone, by going after and crunching the skull of their prey, or, or by snapping the spinal vertebrae, whereas all other cats go for the throat, the soft tissue of the throat. The jaguar goes for the bone in order to make a savage, instantaneous kill and bring the animal down. And yet, and yet it's the only cat known to never have been a man-eater. While tigers and lions and leopards have killed hundreds of thousands of people historically and actually have sometimes hunted people, even mountain lions, pumas in our own country, have killed scores of people. The jaguar is actually has been seen historically by some explorers as being almost cowardly because it, it runs from confrontation. It seems to run from confrontation. What it, what it does is it's escaping confrontation. The jaguar has learned that its survival is better if it avoids confrontation than to engage in confrontation. And yet, if it is forced to engage in confrontation, it comes at you savagely and kills instantly. This is a lesson. This is why I call it the reluctant warrior. It's an animal that has seemed to have achieved like the the equivalent of the heights of martial arts. It, It avoids fighting at all costs, but when it has to fight, it doesn't play around. It just charges in and ends the fight with, a, with an instant kill. Human beings could learn a lot from the strategy of a jaguar. And it seems certain cultures have learned about that. Now, considering that, that sort of non-aggressive uh, behavior of jaguars, particularly towards humans, what's it like to face and and deal with the barbarity of humans towards jaguars and and other wildlife? Well, I've done all of that. I have faced, on on the one side, I've actually come face-to-face with jaguars in the jungle, and I can't say I wasn't scared, even knowing what I just said. 
I was scared because you're facing an incredibly powerful beast that could kill you easily, and there'd be no way for me to escape from it. And yet it didn't want to do anything, anything aggressive. It just walked off. Um, and on the other hand, I have more often faced humans in the jaguars environment who want nothing more than to than to kill the animal for no other reason than fear or getting a trophy or usually the perception that if there's any jaguar around it's going to kill their cattle or take their pigs or maybe even take their their domestic dogs now that has some truth to it Jaguars do occasionally take people's cattle and pigs and dogs, but they don't do it regularly. If they have plenty of prey in the forest, they don't bother people. In fact, one of the things I learned is that people live very easily with the jaguar because jaguars don't come and hunt people. They're not aggressive when the people meet them. And when the forest is still filled with plenty of food, Jaguars rarely come out and take people's livestock. It happens occasionally, but it's, but it's not a regular occurrence. So that enables people to, to not only live with this huge predator, but to respect it as well and have a mutual, mutual kind of understanding in a different way than what I've seen of people who live among tigers or leopards. People who live with mountain lions, even right now out in the West, there's a similar relationship there. In fact, people have no idea how many mountain lions are really around them in places like San Francisco or, or, or in other parts of California because they're so not, non-aggressive. This kind of a behavior is one of the key characteristics of what allows these large cats or any large predator to coexist with humans. You studied, you did a lot of field work with jaguars and big cats. What did you learn from studying jaguars that helped you to really create a whole new, more comprehensive strategy for pr the preservation of these cats? Well, I realized while I was, in fact, in Asia studying tigers and realizing what horrific shape the tiger as a species was in and really worrying as i still do whether we're going to really be able to save the tiger in the wild i realized that we we had a much much better chance with the jaguar which was still in decent numbers and still occupied a large part of its range and yet people seemed to, to be ignoring it after i had left from studying jaguars and went on to other cats I thought there would be other people to follow in, in my footsteps, and there were not many. So in 1999, I actually came back and said, we've got to look at jaguars again and see what do we really know and not know about this cat throughout its entire range. So I gathered together the world's experts, which weren't many. It was about two dozen people at the time who had studied or was studying jaguars in order to gather all our, pool our knowledge of what we really knew of where the jaguar was, what the threats were, what the critical threats were, and come to a consensus about how we might try to save key jaguar populations 
throughout their entire range. We would have to do something called triage, which because we had limited funds, figure out which were the most priority populations from Mexico through Argentina in different kinds of habitats. This was cutting edge at the time, cutting edge conservation. It was called priority setting, and it was seen as the largest range-wide model that was ever being attempted in conservation, similar to what we were trying to do with the tiger. Lo and behold, at that meeting, as a result of that meeting, and all of these scientists coming together, giving their data, and writing papers for the meeting, a group of geneticists using new genetic tools where they could isolate DNA from feces, which had just occurred in 1996, was the first time that was able to be done. They actually looked at jaguar feces of jaguars in different parts of their range in order to determine how many true subspecies there were so we could better get at maybe where we should save these different populations, different races of jaguar. And lo and behold, what people call my epiphany was not an epiphany by me. It was, in fact, the opposite. I had been too foolish to, to see the reality before now. This new data showed, as a result of our meeting, that there were no subspecies of jaguars that even though on a map it looked like jaguar populations were highly fragmented from Mexico to Argentina with millions of people in between, the genetics were showing that somehow jaguars were sneaking through the human landscape similar to what we know as the underground railway of the Civil War. Without people even knowing it, some jaguars were making it from population to population enough to maintain genetic continuity of the entire species. That was unheard of. There was no other species in the world, still isn't, which has genetic continuity throughout its entire range, is not broken up into different races. So in other words, this science that came about as a result of the, the meeting that I called in Mexico in 1999 showed there were no races of jaguars. I couldn't even believe it at first. I actually had to go in the field myself and see if there were really jagu evidence of jaguars in these wide-open places of human landscape, cattle ranches, citrus groves, places with dams, the Panama Canal. It meant jaguars were swimming the Panama Canal. Lo and behold, it was true. Every place we searched, local people knew that jaguars were occasionally passing through. Sometimes they didn't know, and we were able to, to put cameras out and search for tracks and actually find that they were sneaking by without people even knowing about it. Thus, in 2000, was born what I called the Jaguar Corridor Initiative, where instead of realizing that we needed to save distinct populations of jaguars, what we needed to do, which was unheard of for any other species, is save the entire genetic continuity of the species from over two continents, from Mexico to Argentina, and preserve the entire genome of the species as much as possible. Try to keep it as just one species and no races, because that would ensure that it would not go extinct. And that's what we've been working on for the last 15 years. 
it's been long and slow because it's not easy. Once we were able to realize that was what was happening in the field, to actually train and get field teams in every single one of the 18 countries where Jaguars lived throughout Jaguar range, up and running and actually proofing where these Jaguars were moving, where the Jaguar corridor was, and then going to the governments and having them formally acknowledge the Jaguar corridor, this was all very slow, tedious work, but it's proven to be very successful. In fact, in two weeks, I leave for Nicaragua, and we'll be signing the Jaguar corridor in Nicaragua. We've got almost all of Central American countries signed off on the Jaguar corridor, except for Guatemala, which will soon occur. So what you're doing is you're focusing your efforts on preserving the Jaguar corridors. That seems to be the main emphasis. Yes, but that's a dangerous one also, and we're very much aware of that. While we focus our efforts on these Jaguar corridors, which is the human landscape linking good Jaguar populations, we're absolutely keeping an eye on those key crucial Jaguar populations, which are mostly in parks and protected areas. Because if those are not kept intact because of insufficient law enforcement or too much poaching, then we lose everything. Those are the most crucial. The most crucial blocks are the core resident populations where jaguars are protected and they call their home. So it's equivalent to the jaguar's core areas being like a human being's house. That's, that's their sanctuary where they can breed in private, where, where nobody can interfere with them. Once a human being leaves their house, and goes shopping or to work or to do whatever it needs to do in its daily life, those pathways are like the Jaguar corridor. Parts of the corridor can be blocked. So if there's, if there's a dam going on or new road being built, it's as if a road a human being took to work was suddenly cut off because of a flood or maybe they were working on it to upgrade it. You would take another road around it. Even if you couldn't go to work, it wouldn't harm your life. You, you still need your home. But the most crucial component would be your own house. And that's what we have to watch for while we protect these, these travel pathways, these corridors. Most people make the assumption that big cats and other apex predators cannot coexist with humans, particularly with the rapid population expansion and continuing development in the human world. How does your strategy address that, or how do, how do you see the way jaguars can fit in and how they can coexist with humans? Well, the one good thing about the, the jaguar corridor is I didn't invent it. I just realized it was there. So jaguars, like mountain lions, are coexisting with humans. People can say how, and I say they are right now. The way to keep it going is to ensure zoning of certain areas, like we do land use zoning, so that which, which local people love because it ensures their own land. Jaguars can sneak through your own woodland backyard, through vegetable gardens, through, through a cattle ranch. So we ensure that in the Jaguar corridor, certain kinds of land use 
are okay for the Jaguar, which is almost anything. And that means, though, that when a new project happens in a country, say a large dam, as we're working on in Costa Rica right now, maybe a new road, as we're working on in Honduras now, if we've gotten permission from the government to put the Jaguar corridor into the government's database, then any new development, if it's in the Jaguar corridor, that pops up and they have to do an environmental impact statement. Usually, the Jaguar corridor does not necessarily stop development. It's like saying, okay, I've got to work on that main road you now take to your work, and we just have to figure out alternate roads, detours, where you can go around that. If those already exist, then that's okay. If they don't exist, we see if if we can recreate them. If there's no way, then we'll try to mitigate it by saying that development shouldn't occur that way. It should be different so the Jaguar can still move. But Jaguars do live with people, just as in the United States. I don't think people in California realize how, how many mountain lions live around them. And it's because they never see them. Occasionally they will hear of somebody running into a mountain lion or maybe even being attacked by a mountain lion, but but, but that's so rare compared to the to the hundreds or even thousands which are in that state with some animals it's not that easy to uh, i can't say this is a model for every species i would have a hard time explaining how elephants and rhinos could live with people could maintain their traditional migratory routes because those animals can't sneak through the environment Big cats can and do. Tigers are doing it now in India. There are, there are tiger corridors throughout parts of India, the most populated country in the world, with human densities that are mind-boggling. And tigers are following small riverways and sneaking through villages. Big cats, by their nature, are able to live with and move through human-populated areas. It doesn't mean that you can eliminate all conflict. There will always be some compromise involved in terms of some degree of conflict. And if there is conflict, then that conflict has to be mitigated by taking out that problem animal, capturing it, doing something with it. But these cats have lived. That's, that's what was so amazing about the discovery of the jaguar corridor. Over two continents... These jaguars are moving through the human landscape, and you don't see people being bothered by it. In fact, in many areas, people don't even know it's occurring. So not only is it possible, but it's happening. We just have to make sure it continues to happen. And help leave them to their own devices, because they seem to know how to take care of themselves. Exactly. We don't have to do a lot. That's the, that's the key. That's where we could learn from them. There's not a lot of intervention here that's being called for. Just a recognition of how we need to share a piece of the environment with them without us sacrificing development or many of the things we want to be doing. Mm. So I guess that brings us to the, the other big issue. You say that the survival of the jaguar is linked to the survival of, of mankind or vice versa. Why are jaguars so important in the environment that we all share and to the well-being of human life? This is a very, very key issue and a very important one. People often say, look, these are beautiful animals, but 
really. Why, how could we be concerned about them when there's so much else to be concerned about? And I say, fine. Are you concerned about Ebola? Are you concerned about SARS, West Nile virus? Are you concerned about AIDS? Are you concerned about all of the new slew of emerging or reemerging diseases that, that, that have always been in the, the environment, most of which are zoonotic, meaning that there's an animal component? It's very well documented that part of what keeps these diseases in check, part of what maintains human health, has been the firewall of the environment, has been healthy, stable wildlands and ecosystems where these verses have been kept. They're actually, they, they actually have intermediaries in the wild environment, and the stable ecosystem has been a firewall. They haven't jumped into the human environment. But a lot of our intrusion, a lot of our degradation of nature, of forests and of wildlife, has brought these diseases into the human environment. The thing that the big cats, jaguars, other top carnivores do is that they keep everything in balance. A very obvious example in the Northeast is Lyme's disease. Lyme's disease is way out of whack. It's way out of control in the Northeast. It would be more, it wouldn't be eliminated, but it would be more in control if we still had mountain lions and wolves as the top predators helping to control coyotes and deer populations and many other of the species that are getting out of control. Out of control wilderness is not in the best interest of human health and future human populations. So if you want to know what use jaguars and other big predators are, there's a very clear linkage between them and the health of wild systems and human health. From what you're saying, I can readily see that not only do they take out the weak and the sick in, in the other animal populations, but they prevent a proliferation of weakness and sickness in those animal populations. And to me, it sounds like there's a big lesson that we as a species could learn from that because our current lifestyle in our world is perpetuating and enabling a weak and sick behavior lifestyle, and that could be detrimental to the survival of humanity. Exactly. Alan, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you, and I wish you great success in your life and your work, and I'm a big fan of your work, and good luck with everything you're doing. Thank you. It's been wonderful talking. You ask great, great questions. Thank you for your interest and passion. Well, you're doing great work, so... Thank you so much. Thank you, Tonio. It was a pleasure. Be well. Bye. Bye-bye. And that was Alan Rabinowitz, a zoologist who's devoted his life to protecting wildcat species around the world. He's the author of numerous books, including most recently, An Indomitable Beast, The Remarkable Journey, of the Jaguar. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour.
The Jaguar was taken care of. I was thrilled. But what I wasn't thrilled about was the Tiger. The Tiger, we were losing. Now, the Tiger had been broken up. It was not like the Jaguar. There were many different subspecies of Tigers, including this incredibly spectacular. This is the smallest Tiger in the world. It's the only Tiger with a mane. It's the Sumatran Tiger. This is one of the most magnificent animals on Earth, and they're being killed and shot as we speak. This was a tough one. This was tougher and continues to be tougher than the Jaguar because... The killing is just happening constantly. Tigers are in terrible shape. They're in tiny, fragmented populations scattered throughout most of their range. So the key was, what don't we know about tigers? And one of the biggest places was a country called Myanmar. It took me five years in the early 1990s to mid-1990s to get into one of the most spectacular, out-of-time countries I've ever been in in my life the country of Myanmar, known as Burma, just now opening up to the outside world. But the place I really wanted to go was up in the far north, which was supposed to be filled with tigers, but nobody had ever been there surveying, looking for tigers in recent time. It took me several more years to get contact with the government and have me make a trek up into northern Burma, but I ended up in a spectacular valley called the Hukong Valley, and that's when I looked for the tigers taking out camera trap teams, and we found them. Unfortunately, Burma, which should have had a lot more tigers, almost all the tigers through the years of dictatorship, had been wiped out, except in this one area, except in this huge area in northern Burma. There were tigers still roaming, so I had to get it saved. I thought I had learned from the jaguar now. Scale, make it big, ask for something that you just have to get. So we determined what the scale would be, I met with government officials, and in 2004, we had 2,500 square miles set aside as the world's largest tiger reserve. This was the largest protected area I had ever set up, far larger than any tiger reserve in the world. I thought I had made a major accomplishment. Again, again, I was smacked in the face with just how small my thinking was. Right on the heels of my accomplishment, the Myanmar Forest Department, the Director General of Forestry, calls me up in New York City and says, please come back to a meeting that we're having in Rangoon, but we're keeping it quiet. The generals, the dictators don't know about it, but we need to talk to you. Now, going to a secret meeting in, in the world's worst dictatorship where the dictators don't know about it <laughs> wasn't something I thought was a great idea. But it was the director general, and I tried to make sure it wasn't something really underhanded. He said, no, no, come, it'll be good. It's just we can't let them know because you're the only one who could do this. Okay, I went back, and the first thing they said to me was, your surveys of tigers in Burma showed that all of Hukong Valley, all of Hukong Valley had tigers. Now, all of Hukong Valley is 9,000 square miles. Why'd you only ask for 2,500? Now, I've never been accused by anybody of asking for too little. This shocked me. I said, first of all, you're the forestry department. Why don't you ask for more if you think that there should be more? But they couldn't. They said, we can't get to the dictators. You could get to the dictators. But I said, why would I ask for more than what I asked for? Because outside of that 2,500, while there were some of Asia's greatest grasslands still intact, 
Along with that were huge numbers of indigenous people, people like the Naga that killed tigers, people like the Lisu that killed everything they encountered. There was an armed insurgent army with their major base in Hukong Valley fighting the government at the time in the valley. People coming in, killing wildlife, killing bears for their bear pores, for the wildlife trade, for the Asian medicinal trade. There was gold mining opening up huge jungle areas. There was dynamite fishing. And worst of all, for our safety, there was opium growing. All of this was taking place in Hukong Valley, outside of the 2,500 square miles. And the director general stared at me and said, but there are tigers there, right? And I said, yes. And then it hit me. If I've ever had an epiphany, that was it. They got it. They couldn't understand why I didn't get it. They got it. Conservation thinking, traditional wildlife protection, was always about hard boundaries, always about locking up animals away from people. This is where the tiger lived. The tiger was out there among all this. All of our problems came from trying to aspire to some Bambi-like steady state equilibrium where the wildlife lived in harmony within a hard boundary area and we protected them and nothing would ever be affected. That's why we were always in crisis mode because they never lived in harmony with people. What conservation was, what I realize it was, and what the whole conservation community needs to realize it is, is just like everything else in this world, it's a dynamic disequilibrium. That's what conservation must be viewed at, just like we view our everyday life as a dynamic disequilibrium, which we try to keep around a steady state, around a mean that satisfies us as people whether it's murder rates, whether it's quality of life, whether it's health issues, we aspire to a certain state knowing that's not optimal, nor is it what we could get theoretically, but it's what we're satisfied with. That's how conservation has to go. Because conservation, once you look at it that way, and once I've started to, I was able to accomplish so much more. Then you can scale up. Once you realize that wildlife lives in a dynamic disequilibrium, with the human world, and that nothing's a crisis, it's just variations, it's just bumps and troughs, and you do what you have to do to bring it back to that steady state. Then we move forward. Then I started working with all the people, so I took it on, bringing the generals together, bringing different tribal groups together, bringing local people together, training guards. I'm a scientist, training up patrols, who put their lives on the line and shouldn't have to be carrying weapons which are worse than what the poachers have because tiger bone is so valuable. And then eventually I did what everybody said I'd never do. Because once somebody says I can't do it, I know I'm going to do it. And that was I got to meet with then, he was called Secretary One, head of the largest military intelligence network in the world at the time, Secretary One Kin Yunt, who at the time was in total control of the Myanmar government along with Senior General Tan Shui, who now is in control of the entire government and has taken this man down. But at the time, he was the most powerful man. I got to him and I said, I, I made a mistake. The 2,500 square miles is too small. This is the only place you have tigers. You're going to lose tigers. I need the whole Hukong Valley. I need it all. He looked at me. And he said to me, he said, aren't you a bit scared coming to me and asking me for this much? 
after you've just asked for 2,500 square miles? And I said, yes, I am. But I said, aren't you scared that Burma will be the only country in Tiger Range which once had more tigers than anybody else outside of India, and you're going to lose all your tigers if this valley is not protected? He smiled. He said, okay, if I do this, what about there's supposed to be natural gas in there? Some people say there's valuable timber, though we knew the timber wasn't much in there. I said, none of that has to stop. You could have, this area is the size of a small country. It's almost the size of the state of Vermont. We can have our tigers, you can have development. He said, done. That's the value of working in a dictatorship. <laughs> 9,000 square miles. At the time, while I had been waiting for them to pass it, I set up four more protected areas north of there, 13,000 square miles. Now the tigers had their own little country. Tigers could be tigers. Tigers could live the way tigers were meant to live. But this is not enough. Believe it or not, as much as this had been my life's accomplishment, this was not enough. The biggest landscapes are not good enough. I knew now from the Jaguars not to sell the tiger short because if we were successful bringing them back in these core areas, they needed corridors. They needed to maintain genetic continuity. They needed to reestablish the genetic continuity with other populations. Unlike Jaguars, these corridors didn't exist in reality but I knew they could exist. Once we could open up some of the human landscape, they could sneak by the people without people ever knowing that they are there. Big cats can do this. And that was Alan Rabinowitz a zoologist who's devoted his life to protecting wildcat species around the world. He's the author of numerous books, including most recently, An Indomitable Beast, The Remarkable Journey of the Jaguar. Not an easy thing. This has been a lifelong mission and it will be until I die. And many other people are working on it. It means working with people. It means life has come full circle in order to do everything I ran away from doing. But it means if you want to save the animals, you work with the people, with development, with the governments, and it can work. It all can work. And you can get a natural world where tigers, where big cats, can survive. The boy I was had found his voice. But more importantly, much more importantly, I found a voice for the animals. I think I did. At least I gave them a partial voice through my voice. I feel good now 
about what the future can potentially hold for the big cats, as bad as it is out there, and it is bad, but we need a lot of help. You don't look at this and think, well, should I give to this or give to the cancer center? I'm telling you, they're one and the same. You want quality of life? You want good health for all the cultures in the world, including us in the United States with infectious diseases? You want to protect these big cats. These big cats not only create a wild that adds to our quality of life, but beyond that, they truly protect us. They protect us by feeding into a system that makes sure things are in balance. And things being in balance means a healthy, better world for all of us. So I call on you to help put me back where I belong. And it's not here. It's out there. I need governments. I need corporations. I need individuals putting their resources where their talk is. And I guarantee you, I absolutely guarantee you, and I don't do this lightly. I wouldn't have done it 10 years ago. I can save these big cats. I can guarantee you that your children and your children's children and generations to come will still have wild tigers and wild jaguars out there. But you gotta help me on this. You gotta help me with resources. Thank you very much. I want people to help me save the big cats. Think about what we're really giving future generations. We have to give them a world with lions and tigers and jaguars and leopards. We have to, otherwise what are we giving them? Again, that was Alan Rabinowitz. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. I was on the trip of a lifetime. I was hiking up the rugged, remote regions of northern Myanmar, along the snow-capped mountains of the eastern Himalayan plateau, a place where remote tribal groups lived alongside unseen, rare, endangered Himalayan wildlife. My task at hand at the time was to try to find the most northern range of the Indo-Chinese tiger. And if I could find it in this rugged terrain, possibly even come upon the remote valleys where the tiger might be wandering with the elusive snow leopard.
This was a dream come true for me, and I should have been elated, but I wasn't. Any feeling of happiness was overshadowed by feelings of sadness, guilt, and fear, because I had just walked out on my wife, Salisa, five years without knowing if she would be there when I got back. You see, my wife, she wanted to have a child. She said it was now or never, and never wasn't an option. I wanted everything just to be the same. As a child, I had been born with a debilitating stutter. I lived in a world of silence. I hadn't spoken a full, fluent sentence to another adult human being until I was 19 years old. Now at 45, I was still running. I was still trying to find a world which was away from the world of people who, had, who I felt had so mistreated me. No, I was way too broken inside to think I could be a father to a child. At this point in my life, it was about animals. I had to save animals and I had to be their voice. Everything else was a distraction. We were more than four weeks and over 200 miles into the hike. All of us were exhausted. Only a few days from our final destination of the last village in Myanmar and Burma and then the snowy mountains, we, we came upon a fork in the trail. The trail, the river we were following north, that was where we had to go. But there was a small tributary going off to the east down a narrow canyon. That's where I wanted to go. That wasn't on our planned route, but that was on my planned route. It's just that the team didn't know about it yet. Because right before our trip, I had come upon an old journal from the early 1900s with a paper written by a British botanist who had been exploring in this region and found a group of strange pygmoid people down this side canyon. People he described as primitive simian beings and one of nature's unsuccessful experiments. Due to his writings, a Burmese medical expedition had come up into this region and explored this canyon in the 1960s and come upon a group of people called the Tyrone, who they documented as the world's only living mongoloid pygmies. Nothing had been known of them since. And to my knowledge, I was the first Western in there in at least half a century. I had to go find out what was happening with these people. Well, my teen wasn't thrilled when I broke it to them at this point that I wanted to go up this side canyon, but they gave me a few extra days. What I didn't realize is how rugged the hiking would even get up this canyon, more so than it was already. After a couple of days, I was, I was so exhausted, I was running on fumes. My left knee had swollen, fluid had gathered in my knee, and I was limping much of the, 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 the time. We were all running on fumes, all exhausted. I wasn't sleeping at night. Thoughts of my wife, Salisa, haunted me. I was wondering what she was thinking, what she was feeling, if she was even still there. I would wake up in the morning totally exhausted and then hike even faster so I didn't have to think, push myself harder. None of the team wanted to hike with me because of my moodiness and my pace. 
Finally, everything came to a head a few days into this side canyon. I was so exhausted, so sleep-deprived, I actually started having hallucinations. I literally started seeing vivid images in my mind playing out like a TV soap opera. I could see my wife. She had met someone else since I'd left. He was taller, better looking than me. She went out three times with him, twice for lunch, once dinner. He gave her Merlot, her favorite wine. She knew that she shouldn't be doing this, but he fed into the loneliness that was inside of her. She never talked about me, and he never asked. He just told her how he loved her beautiful black silky hair and her Asian features. I came around the bend on the trail, and, and I saw a waterfall up ahead. Okay, okay, I, I, I'm still in control here. If I make that waterfall in 15 minutes, then my wife wouldn't have kissed him. I took off, limping, but I took off. 20 minutes later, I knew I was too late. Salisa was feeling terribly guilty. She knew that she should go home now, but she didn't want to go home to an empty apartment, to an empty bed again. I crested the, the top of a hill. Down below in the valley was the village. At least I thought it was that village. That must be the Tyrone Pygmy village we were seeking. All right, the way that this trail's winding around the mountain and slowly making its way down into the valley, I probably had 30 to 40 minutes until I got to, to that village. I got to get in control. If I make that village in 30 minutes, then she wouldn't have spent the night with him. If I don't, then our marriage is over. That's all there is to it. I took off again limping even more this time. After 10 minutes, I stopped. There's no way I'm making that village in 30 minutes. No way. But I got to get control. Nobody has ever told me what I can or cannot do. Not since I was a child. That son of a bitch is not going to beat me. I turned and leapt off the trail, off the mountain. Started sliding, running, tumbling, down the steep slope of the mountain towards the village. The village wasn't what I'd expected, at least not on first glance. The few people who I saw who came out looked of normal stature. They definitely weren't pygmies. Nobody seemed to know or want to tell me anything about these Tyrone people. I thought it was all a waste. I felt like things were just falling apart on me inside and outside. I was ready to give up when all of a sudden I saw a pair of eyes peering from behind the little doorway in one of the huts in the distance. They were not just any eyes. They were eyes set in an old, worn, roomy-looking face, and it was only about four feet off the ground. The person I was speaking to, the village headman, turned and followed my gaze, saw where I was looking. His demeanor changed as he turned back to me. We're a Talu village, he said now. But there are some Tyrone pygmies left. Only a few. We protect them. Then he started walking off towards the hut, and I followed him. In the 1960s, when the Burmese medical expedition came and studied these people, they had found over 50 pure Tyrone pygmies. 
And despite documenting high rates of cretinism, mental retardation, goita, and other physical and mental maladies, they felt this was a pretty stable community, that it would last into the future. But that's not what I was seeing. What I was seeing right now were less than 12 pure Tyrone pygmies left and they were all in terrible shape. I didn't get it. Nobody would explain to me or could explain to me why this was. Finally, the village headman took me to the last hut, the most remote hut at the very edge of the, the village. As I walked in, two Tyrone women, disheveled, vacant-eyed, scurried around trying to make us tea. There was a fire in the middle of the hut. Sitting by the fire was, was a little impish Tyrone man, his back turned towards me. His name was Dawi, I was told. And Dawi was 39, and at 39 he was the youngest of the living Tyrone. And he and his two sisters in this hut were the last pure Tyrone family left. When I had first walked into the hut, I had caught Dawi's eye as he glanced up at me. There was a look in his eye, a look of intelligence, unlike what I'd seen in the other, in the other Tyrone but now he wouldn't face me. I sat down opposite him around the, the fire, staring at the back of his head until finally he turned and our eyes met and our eyes held. That was more than intelligence in this man's eyes. There was a look of anger, a look of challenge, as if Dawi was daring me to mock him or to question his existence. Boy, boy, I knew that look. That was a familiar look to me. That look was the look of a little stuttering boy who, who lived in a world shut out by other adult humans. That was my face. That was a face I'd see every day in the mirror of my childhood. I was staring so intently at Dawi that I didn't notice how close I was to the fire until I started smelling the burning rubber and feel the heat in my, in my foot. My boot had caught on fire. I jumped up started dancing, stomping, stomping on the, the flames, trying to put out the fire in my foot. All of a sudden, I heard the most bizarre cackling sound. I turn, and Dawi is standing, facing me, almost bent over double with laughter. It was the strangest sight, but I didn't realize at the time that this would be the only time I would ever see Dawi laugh or smile. But clearly I had broken the ice between us. For the rest of the evening, we sat around that fire, and with the help of a translator, we talked. I told him how my mission in life now was to be saving animals, was to find the last great wild places and to be the voice for some of these great species that were being lost quickly to the world. Dawi just looked at me quietly. Then I asked Dawi something nobody else seemed to want to answer. Dawi, where are the other Tyrone? What happened to them? Have they gone? Where is your family? Where's your wife? Where's your children? Dawi looked at me for a few seconds. There are no more Tyrone, Dawi said. Tyrone babies have small heads and small bodies. They're no good. There's too much pain. There's no more Tyrone. I didn't know what Dawi was saying to me. I turned to the translator and said, please make sure that you're translating Dawi's words exactly as he's saying them because I'm not quite understanding. I think Dawi saw that. He went on. When I was a child, Dawi said, 
My father told me, this is all the family you will ever have. You will have no wife. You will have no children. The Tyrone people must not marry with other Tyrone. There can be no more Tyrone babies. He said that his father, Dawi's grandfather, had gotten together with the village elders and determined that Tyrone children were born too misshapen for reasons they didn't understand. They were no good, life was too hard, other people had to help them, and they just had to stop existing. I stared at Dawi, trying to comprehend the idea of a race of people voluntarily taking themselves to extinction. Dawi broke through my thoughts. Why don't you have a family, Dawi said. I do have a family, Dawi. I could picture my, my wife's face, hoping she was still there. My wife, Salisa, but she's very, very far away. You don't have any children. Why don't you have any children, Dawi said. I didn't answer, Dawi. I didn't tell him I didn't have any children. Your eyes are sad, Dawi said. Too sad. You have a hole here, he said, touching me in the heart. I know. Me too, he said, patting himself on the chest. The next day, Dawi asked me if I would accompany him up the nearby mountain into the snow. No one else, just me and Dawi. We went up all day, and we talked without ever talking. We we. We, we communicated through gestures, through, through touching, through miming. It felt so great. It felt so natural to me. It felt like everything I had wanted as a child, all my childhood. I, I had wanted a friend who I could communicate with without having it be just a spoken word. And now I had found that person in one of the most remote areas in the world. And soon I'd be leaving him. I'd be running again. As it was getting late, up on the mountain, I motioned Dawi that we had to get down. I didn't want to be hiking down in the dark. Dawi gestured for me to wait for a little while and to please sit down by a rock. I sat down on the rock as Dawi took off his little pack he had brought up for the day. Then Dawi took out things from the pack, making sure I was watching. He took out a little cloth, took out a few belongings, he put the belongings in the cloth and started very deliberately wrapping the ends up, almost gently, until it was a tight little bundle. And then he held it to his chest. I motioned, what are you doing, Dawi? I don't know what you're doing. Dawi walked over to me. He pushed the bundle into my stomach. I said, I don't want anything, Dawi. He pushed the bundle into my stomach again until I had to cradle the bundle in my arms. Once I had it cradled, he took his hands and grabbed me by the elbows, and he started rocking my elbows, my arms back and forth. And then he touched me on the heart again. I turned away from Dawi, not wanting him to see the tears welling up in my eyes. You and I are so much alike, Dawi born into broken bodies, trapped inside our own head, misunderstood by the outside world who didn't even care to look deeper. 
but we're not alike, are we, Dowie? That's what you're telling me. I've got choices. I can fix what ails me. You can't. You have no choices. It would do no good for me to ask Dowie what he thought of his future. He was the last of the Tyrone. He was dying alone. A little more than a year later, I took a little photograph of my newborn son, Alex, and I wrapped it up carefully in an envelope. And I mailed it to my friend in Myanmar with careful instructions on what to do with it. It took almost another year until I got a letter back from my friend. In the letter he wrote, Dawi looked a long time at the photograph. Then he rubbed his fingers over the face. Then he smiled. And then he laughed. Thank you. That was Alan Rabinowitz, and that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you all for listening. Till next time, have a wonderful week. This podcast is brought to you by Goddard College Community Radio, WGDR in Plainfield, Vermont. For more information, check out WGDR.org.
گشته خوشیده خوشه